are back with another exciting episode of Inspirational Journeys of the Best Minds brought to you by Emergy. Join us as we delve into the captivating personal and professional lives of accomplished senior executives, exploring their extraordinary experiences and looking at their profound impact of the present time. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Emain Jamal Adin, Chief of Staff at Microsoft. As a graduate from the Tohoku University in Japan with a master's degree in electrical and communication engineering, Emain has lived and worked in Morocco, Japan, France, and Singapore. Emain draws her inspiration to innovate from a profound sense of cultural integration and an inclusive approach towards individuals across diverse business roles and functions. Driven by her passion for diversity and inclusion, her mission is to make a lasting impact on the community by embracing diversity and fostering a genuine sense of belonging that transcends gender, race, ethnicity, and religion. Emain actively advocates for and empowers women in technology, serving as a catalyst to inspire young female talent across Asia, encouraging them to embrace the realms of technology and innovation. I'm very excited to welcome Emain today as we delve into her remarkable journey. So welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Emain. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I must say that your LinkedIn posts are truly inspiring as someone who shares a similar background, fellow brown girl, and who's also lived in Japan. I greatly appreciate the vulnerability and authenticity that you bring to your content. So I wanted to begin our discussion by exploring the impact that people and environment during your formative years have had in shaping your journey. So my first question to you today is, what was it that you wanted to become as a kid and how did you get started in your career? Uh, yes, so um, I'm a brown Arab Muslim uh, woman who were, was born and bred in Morocco. So I'm a Moroccan from origin and a Japanese by nationality and citizenship. Um, my two parents were educators. My mom is a math a teacher and my dad is French teacher. So I grew up in um, academics and education. And I loved both of them. I loved poetry. I loved literature. I, I loved French classic literature and I love math and uh, and uh, my mom was like you can you, you get math and STEM as your career and become an engineer and then get poetry as a hobby or you know being creative and hence you know the writing that I do and the posts that I do are all coming from my own creative aspects uh, whereas as, as education and as career the advice from my mom was to become an engineer and go into STEM. Uh, Having said that, when I was a kid, what I wanted to do is to work for the NASA. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was my dream for many, many years. I was like, okay, you know what? I want to go to the NASA. And representation mattered because when I was a kid or maybe a, little, a teenager at that time, there was an article about a Moroccan who worked in the NASA and that was in the national paper in Morocco. And I was like, yes, I want to go to the NASA. So that did not happen, but that was my uh, aspiration when I was a young kid to study. But to have that kind of support system from your parents, your mom, you know, promoting and empowering you to like take STEM as a program, it's commendable even back in that time. Yes, yes. And um, in fact, my dad was more um, empowering. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm dad's daughter, uh, through and through. And, uh, you know, in Morocco, you still, the, my mom, uh, who was a working mom, so I, I really just grew up with, with an independent working mom, financially independent, and so all that. Wow. So what were some of the biggest challenges you must have faced, or how did you overcome them? 
Yeah, so that's that. Uh, you know, probably I need a book. I need to write a book on uh, studying and uh, working in Japan. Um, but I left Morocco to go to Japan at 18 years old to study engineering. And um, you know, you go to STEM in Japan and you are a foreign student. It's equal to being an alien. Like the, the, my fellow students did not really know how to engage and interact. But again, you know, you learn you learn the, the language, you adapt to the culture and all that. I met my uh, husband who who is also Moroccan. I met him in Tokyo where I, while I was studying. Um, and you know, we uh, it's been a 20 years of marriage right now. And you know, I married him when I was uh, first year of uh, master of my master education. One of the challenges that I had when I wanted to you know look for a job after after my master degree is that um, I there was this bias or stigma towards students who were female students who were married. Uh, because in the Japanese culture uh, or mindset at that time, and bear in mind that's 2006, uh, which is like 16 years ago, the the mindset is uh, she's fertile, she's young, she's married, she's going to have kids, she will not have time for her career. So the first challenge I had when I joined the workforce is that I did not disclose that I was married. Uh, so for for three years of work in Japan, uh, my comp the companies I worked for did not know I was married. They knew that I had a partner or they knew that I had a boyfriend, but the fact that they did not disclose that really hit me as lack of authenticity from my end, but also uh, with my his my supportive husband. Um, so that's that's really challenging because. Um, you would you start thinking why what if when I say I'm married uh, or I hear them talking about other people or other uh, young female talent they say oh yeah yeah she will she will go into a maternity leave and she will disappear and she will not be accountable and all these are unconscious biases that are not true at all uh, but in order for me to prioritize my career I had to lay down or lay low in the fact that I was married and I have a family. And what brought you to Japan after leaving from, from Morocco to Japan? What was the reasoning behind, you know, perhaps choosing Japan as your destination for studies? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Moroccans will always go to Europe. They will go to France because we speak the language or to Belgium or, uh, or sometimes UK or the US. And I read a book at that time that was the Blue Ocean Strategy, or, you know, you do things that no one else does. So mm -hmm. when the Ministry of Education uh, from Japan came to me and he said, would you want to come and study? You can do this exam and we'll give you the scholarship and, and uh, you know, we will take care of everything uh, for you to, to, to get your education in Japan. I would like, there are hundreds of thousands of Moroccans who go to, to Europe and US there are not many who go to Japan. So I wanted to do something that no one else did, or very few did, and hence I was like, okay, you know what? Uh, let's back and go from the sunset, which is Maghrib, Maghrib in Arabic is sunset, to the sunrise, which is Nippon in Japan. So that was, you know, kind of um, bold, and in the same time, just, I, I, I wanted to explore things that not many Moroccans would do. That's a good way to put it from sun 
rise sunset to sunrise that's very nice yes. so moving on to you know the other roles that you led in your career throughout each of them are there any most you know some of any important leadership lessons that you've kind of come across and that's something that you've imbibed in your own journey as a leader yeah one of them which is uh, i i really love to, to talk about that because we always talk about experience and you know walking the talk and all that um the the fact that my first leader or the one of the early leaders that i have um took a bet on me to give me a leadership position where i was i was just two years in the workforce um mm -hmm. so i joined the workforce around 25 24 25 years old and he gave me uh, a team to manage so i became a people manager and i became a leader uh in the company at the age of 26 27 um, so I always say that I have 16 or 17 years of experience and I have 15 years of leadership just because he really was a visionary. He was a Japanese uh, leader and, uh, and a department head and he saw probably some leadership skills or he saw some potential or some talent and he came and said, Iman San, would you take that the role of, uh, of a people manager and you'd become an M1 and you have a team of 20 uh, engineers and, and database specialists and all that and I want you to lead the team. Um, of course I said yes and I needed to learn on the job how to be a manager and how to be a leader. I wasn't perfect from day one. There was a lot of stumble along the way, but taking a bet on someone uh, it's absolutely critical and important, and that's how I pay forward. So I always take, uh, you know, identify top talent or high potential, and sometimes high, female or diverse high potential who sometimes they will not have think uh, or have the, of themselves as leaders, or they would have the imposter syndrome or not enough confidence to go to, and getting that talent and, you know, growing them and seeing them succeed and giving them that chance and taking the bet on them, it's absolutely important for me because that's how I grew in my leadership is mm -hmm. someone else took a bet on me. Uh, that's how that's how it started. And do you have a specific type of leadership style that you personally like or follow? Uh, I would say servant leadership. When I discovered servant leadership, I think around uh, 2012, so it's been like 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, in, I, I started my leadership journey in, in 2008. Uh, and from 2008 to 2012, I was more of a very strict leader, uh, very demanding leader, looking into the number driven, result driven, and it's very tough. And then at, two, at 2012, uh, again, one of my leaders and one of my bosses and mentors came to me and introduced me to the servant leadership. And that really just changed the whole dynamics that uh, I work for my team, I support my team, I enable my team, I stand up for my team, and I'm here at the service of others and the service of the community and the service of the organization. That, that completely changed the way I function, uh, and it, it really changed also my personal philosophy. So my personal philosophy is to be at the service of others, and that's it all started from that 2012 when uh, he had a conversation with me, a coaching conversation to say, I know you're tough on yourself, I know you're tough on your team, 
but have you considered being at their service and really being empathic with them? You know, the, the, the person that you spoke about that, you know, didn't make the numbers, do you know that they had personal challenges? Do you know that they had, you know, at that time there was no mental health, uh, you, know, yeah. you know, topic, but, at, you know, the, the, the mindset was that this person was going through a lot from their personal side and you're just doing numbers, numbers, numbers. Have you really thought outside that, you know, as a holistic human beings about your team? And that was an aha moment. Like, oh my God, what was I missing for the last four or five years of my leadership? Really looking into numbers, but not really looking into a team, into the mm -hmm. people the human aspect and the empathic aspect. So that's where I, I still stand by it. I still stand by servant leadership and I still stand by me supporting them and empowering them rather than the other way around. So it's like the people-driven aspect of Yes, yes. Do you remember any specific moment or experience that was, you know, that defies your career or a turning point for your career? Uh... I think one of them was um, when I came back from maternity leave from my eldest uh, child. So again, I got married when I was in, uh, my, in my master's degrees, but I prioritized my career for eight years. And then, you know, in my early 30s, I decided to, to become a mom. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was already uh, a department head. I had hundreds of people reporting to me. And, you know, I was very successful in, in, in my career. And um, so I decided to, 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 to have a child and after, and here, you know, when you are in employment class in Singapore, you have eight weeks of maternity leave. So after eight weeks, I came back. So it's not like I disappeared for six months or, uh, or a year and, you know, kudos to, to, to the mothers out there who are doing that as well. But I literally came back after eight weeks and uh, my manager at the time, did not, was not convinced that I am back to my 100%. Uh, so uh, teams were taken out away, um, some kind of demotion was there, you know, some lack of trust that, you know, uh, from his perspective, you becoming a mom is not, uh, in fact, instead of, I see, I see it as when you become a mom, you know how to, uh, be even more efficient how to time manage because you need to 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 prioritize and and you really need to focus and look into your priorities but he didn't he saw it as uh, she doesn't have enough time for the job anymore because she has a baby at home and you know that was um, uh, again an experience that I take uh, with me and that whenever I see uh, a pregnant woman or I'm expecting uh, talent, I would one talk to her that it's okay to go on maternity leave and come back, and that it's it's okay to come back and be successful. Uh, gone are the days where there is an unconscious bias of a woman coming back to work. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, that was the point that really defined my career moving forward. I I changed job uh, and left that company six months after I came back from maternity leave because. You know, we, you want to work for a culture that empowers you and a culture that trusts you. But that was a very defining moment and an experience that 
made me help others uh, and other women who were at that uh, experience that even now. Eight weeks of maternity leave, I cannot even imagine. That's, you don't even have enough time to take care of yourself at that time. No, no, no. And then coming back to work and not finding uh, the, the support system at work or the empathy at work, uh, that was one of the hardest times in my life. And, you know, what advice would you give to aspiring professionals who are also starting out in their corporate careers, particularly in a STEM-oriented field? Um, I think have confidence. Uh, you know, you you have, um, for, for those professionals, especially in STEM or elsewhere, you know, you're a college graduate or, or a post-grad, you studied, you're smart, you're confident, you're... Um, you managed all your university studies and, and navigated the education system and all that, you have this job or you have this role for a reason. So have confidence in yourself, have confidence in your abilities. Um, you know, I, I just read something um, a few weeks ago that uh, the successful people are not the, the smartest people, but they are the people who are confident in their skills and abilities. So confidence as a skill is super important. That, that makes or breaks uh, success because um, when you have an opportunity or when there is something happening, when you say, I don't know, you know, uh, I will not raise my hand because it's way beyond me, or you'd say, I am confident that 60% of it I can already do, and I'm confident that I will learn the 40%. The dynamics of the hiring manager or the dynamics of the are completely different. Something that I really want to instill in the diverse uh, talent or early careers. Uh, sometimes I see them coming from an amazing universities and they still have this, I can't do anything, you know, it's not me, uh, it's way beyond my capabilities. Like, no, 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 what worse can happen? Either you, you, you succeed or you learn. There is no failure. Both cases are positive. You succeed or you learn, or you succeed and you learn. Uh, so uh, just take it, take it as a learning opportunity and go for it. I think that's really a good piece of advice. And I always end the podcast on this question. So I'm going to ask you, if you win a lottery and money isn't a factor, what will you do with your time? I mean, it's, a, it's probably sound cliche, but um, I grew in... Uh, in a household of educators and academics and education is really key for me. And I've seen how education can break the, the, the cycle of poverty and mm -hmm. uh, illiteracy when, when, you know, the first generation of, of the educated people, they, they get outside of the poverty and the second generation and the third generation. So if I have, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, if I won the lottery and money is not a problem, I would go back and be an educator somewhere, um, somewhere where they need education. So that's that's the deep core in me is really educate and and talk to the younger generation and and you know inspire them, um, get back the spark in their eyes and get the joy in their faces. And on that note. Um, thank you so much, Iman, for being on this podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. And this conversation was extremely insightful.
Thank you for having me, Leah. Thank you.